everybody. Welcome. My name is Tamar Garb, and I'm the director here of the Institute of Advanced Studies. And really, um, very, very happy to welcome you to what promises to be an extraordinary conversation, I'm sure. Um, having read this wonderful book, I'm so excited to hear Elizabeth speak about it um, this evening, and especially in conversation with Oliver Davis. It is an amazing achievement. I don't know how many of you have had a chance yet to look at the book um, or to read it, but it is. Um, quite an extraordinary and innovative uh, document in a way, not only because it is about the world which Elizabeth herself experienced, and the title Circulacy de Mafia indicates already that there's a personal investment in this narrative, which is an investment around uh, witness and um, survival and a descriptor and indeed a friend of some of the participants, uh, co-mourner with others, somebody who has lost people in this process, but also somebody whose life has been shaped and galvanized, in a sense, by the art and the experiences that she describes here. Um, so it's work that comes very much out of the writing of herself, but without any of the gratuitous psychologizing or self-narrativizing or autobiography that we see in so many accounts like this. And we were talking a little bit before the beginning of the session about how subtly and carefully the book navigates this space between what it is um, to write from the self through the voices of others, through the, through the surrogate practices of others, through the technologies and mediations of art practices, which she knows so intimately and well, without actually telling us very much about who she is. <coughs> so it is profoundly personal, but profoundly political, and at the same time remarkably detached, not in the negative sense of that word, but in the sense of someone who describes from outside with an amazing astuteness of voice um, and pen. So um, I've had the privilege of reading it, and thank you, um, Elizabeth, for uh, agreeing to do this conversation, and to you, Oliver, for agreeing to be the interlocutor, um, because it's made me read it properly, and I've had it for a while, I've only been able to skim it um, in, in, in the last months. Um, the book has already engendered a huge amount of attention, and indeed a prize in Paris, the uh, Prix Dex, is that mm, right? Pierre Dex. Yes, which, um, Pierre Dex, which uh, Elizabeth was uh, awarded in, um, in December, and it's been widely, widely reviewed and discussed on radio and television and print and everywhere else. Um, but it's a culmination, really, of, um, I suppose, four decades of work as an activist and as a writer, as a feminist, as an art historian. Uh, some of you will know Elizabeth's work from the past. I first came across it probably about 30 years ago, when um, as a student, well, as an early career researcher, I would say, I first read Elizabeth's amazing essay on Matisse's portraits, where she did this wonderful Lacanian analysis of the scratch and the scratching mark um, in Matisse's portraits. And I knew at that point that this was somebody with a really extraordinary um, way of understanding the physical properties of artworks in relation to a whole series of theoretical edifices, which was certainly beyond my education at the time, and opened up a huge amount um, of thinking for me. Um, so, so through the 80s and early 90s, Elizabeth was writing uh, a lot of art criticism. Many of you will know she wrote uh, for Liberation at that time, um, right up until 2006, through the 90s, and right up until uh, 2006. Um, she's also the editor-in-chief of the magazine Bazaar um, in, in France, and she contributed many essays to many, many different um, art newspapers. 
And since 2006, she's organized a seminar in Paris, which has become a veritable meeting point for anybody interested in um, uh, politically engaged, uh, progressive, um, challenging work in theory. And the seminar is called Something You Should Know. And it's at, um, at the Ecole des Altitudes en Sciences Sociales. And those of us who are lucky enough to be on the mailing list are constantly uh, uh, feeling anxious <laughs> and upset by, by the fact that we can't attend. Or oh, participated, Tamar. I, mean, I have participated, and it's true. A few of you are in the room participated. <laughs> yes, but we then so. know what an extraordinary forum it is. Um, but you know, most often we're tied to our desks back here and can't come here and some of the so it's an amazing space in Paris, especially given the uh, political climate and the context within which art is discussed and practiced. And Elizabeth has been one of the incredibly vociferous voices for, for feminist thinking, for lesbian and queer thinking, for engaged and political and difficult art. And that space has become one of those spaces where everybody who's in Paris who wants to engage with those kinds of issues is sure to be seen and to um, enter into conversation. And in terms of Elizabeth's own production, probably what continues to be the most inspirational venue for the publication of her thoughts is her blog, Le Globiste. Some of you uh, will, I know, know it. Um, it's amazing. Every time uh, I want to think about what's on in Paris and what is the current debate that's going on about what's on in Paris, it's the go-to place to find out. So if you don't know it, I do suggest you check it out. Um, so it's an amazing privilege and a joy, Elizabeth, to have you with us to celebrate the publication of this book, and especially um, to hear you engage in conversation with it, um, with Oliver Davis. And Oliver has been an astute and patient and wonderfully attentive reader, I know, from talking about the book with him already. He's a uh, He's a reader in French studies at Warwick University. He's co-director of Warwick Centre for Research in Philosophy, Literature and <coughs> Arts. Um, he's author of a number of books, including uh, a book on Jacques Concierge uh, and another one called Concierge Now. Um, and his research ranged across 20th century and contemporary French philosophy, aesthetics, critical theory, queer theory, and critical security studies. Um, so he's going to prompt the questions and then open up the conversation. Before I hand over to Elizabeth um, and Oliver, I wanted also to say a special thank you to Adrian Rifkin, who I've described as the midwife of tonight's event, um, <laughs> because when he and I were talking about um, how important this book was and how we'd like to market, it was he who suggested that we set up this conversation and indeed introduced me to, um, to Oliver. So thank you, Adrian, and thank you all for coming. Thank you very much, Tamar. Um, so this book, uh, Elizabeth, it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful recreation of, of the kind of sensible texture of a particular moment. Um, I suppose we can call it an archive um, of art and activism at the end of the 20th century, as, as you say in, in the subtitle. And so in this archive, um, we've got, well, we've got the self, uh, we've got artworks, we've got exhibitions, uh, art practices, curatorial practices, uh, critical discussion, uh, geography, particular geographies, um, ways of looking and um, ways of, of situating oneself. And it, 
it's, it seems like a wonderful nexus or, or perhaps network is the wrong word, but a confluence of all of these mm-hmm. um, uh, different, different elements. I wanted to start uh, by asking you about uh, the writing process, but most especially about the rewriting process, mm-hmm. because most of these texts are, are rewritten, aren't they? And also the, the compositional process. So which, which essays, which work did you uh, decide to include and how did you uh, face the question of excluding uh, uh, works? Um, and, and how did all of that feel for you? Okay. First of all, I want to thank Tamar and to thank you very, very much. I'm very moved by this, uh, this reunion. And I know many faces here and I'm very happy that they're all there. And thank you all for being here. Okay, so I have to say first that um, this book is part of a collection which is actually curated by uh, my colleague in that seminar, something you should know, Patricia Falvière. And I, well, I'm going to begin easily to say that it has been much influenced, and you're, gonna, you're gonna, not going to say no, Francesco, by Carla Lanzi's uh, Autoritrato, Self-Portrait. You know, it is a book that is, has been published in a French translation in the same collection. And Carla Lanzi, is an art critic, an art historian. She was a student of Longhi and a, a, a feminist, a very important Italian feminist. And before joining, I mean, before creating, in a way, a kind of you know, Italian feminism, she writes this incredible self-portrait, which is a self-portrait made of interviews that she's been doing with artists all male, one female, all male. And these interviews that she's been recording, so there's the technology of the recorder involved there, she doesn't publish them, uh, first of all, she published them under the title Self-Portrait, which is quite interesting. And then she doesn't publish them one after the other, you know, going further with such and such and such artists as, you know, all these incredible Italian artists of the 60s of Artipovera, Notably, and Twombly, who doesn't speak actually. Um, she actually mixes everything together. So it becomes a kind of weaving, a fabric of her interventions, her questions, and the answers of the other artists. And all that composes a self portrait. I think one has to, to state that, you know, I'm not, of course, I'm not the first one, but this has been very important. It's been published in the same collection. I Actually, I read it. I was incredibly shaken by it. And so I thought about it or not. And when this offer to write, well, the offer, I don't know what it was. It was to write, you know, to, to do a kind of mixed uh, montage of my own writings. I don't know what it is. And I, I thought it would be very important to mark this moment of AIDS by trying to find out the articles that would actually be the most pertinent. Um, the problem was, I didn't want at all to do a book that would be uh, which artist or what art has been relating, talking, dealing with it. In French, we have this horrible um, thing, which is to say that we work on something, upon something, you know, sur in French. Uh, which is the same word by the, the homonym of certain, by the way, but sur. So people say, je travaille sur. I'm, tra- I'm working upon something. 
you know, as if you would sit above something and dominate it. And so it was exactly what I didn't want to do. So um, I didn't want to choose the artist or to choose the exhibition or to that. First of all, there hasn't been so many exhibitions that would say, you know, the art of AIDS. It would be terrible to say something like the art of AIDS. I didn't want to have the good ones and the bad ones, you know, the valuable ones and the non-valuable ones. That was not my problem. So I didn't find any other way than to browse through articles that had been written that I also wrote and look and see that they had all been marked starred, um, there were something of the moment was there always, you know, you know, for instance, I discovered I had written so many articles that talked about um, how to term interminable and ephemeral and um, termin um, finished, unfinished, you know, as uh, Freud psychoanalysis, Terminable, unterminable, finished, unfinished. Quite a lot of my articles were having that kind of title. So suddenly, so I said, okay, what I'm gonna do is, you know, find a number of of articles I have been writing, and read them, and then I I thought to that they weren't good enough. And I thought that the best thing to do was to rewrite them, which meant also to associate quite freely or unfreely with them. So it was writing with the article. It was rewriting. I think it's a bit, actually, I like it very much and I want to do it more, you know, just to take something that has already been written and rewrite it and suddenly rewrite it from now from this historical perspective, which, is, which means from now, and see how I can associate with them, what, how I can contextualize them, how I can actually understand how these articles, these pieces of writing, too, have been affected by the AIDS crisis. That's how I, okay, that's how I, I thought, what I thought. You, you have to excuse my English, sometimes it's not so good. Um, then the order, well, I made like, like a storyboard. So it was in my home, I was with my partner Catherine and we had little post-it, it was all written. And so we arranged the chapters, you know, like that. And uh, it was wonderful because suddenly I was feeling, I was feeling I was, you know, doing a film, doing a montage, doing some kind of, you know, something that wasn't, I wasn't supposed to do, it was wonderful. That's how I did, you know, it's exactly like that. And at the end, you know, we, we because it was uh, 400, it was ridiculous, it was 600 pages, it was totally ridiculous. I hate large books. <laughs> I hate large books. Well, you know, generally you receive it and it doesn't go through your mailbox, so they put it in the post office, you have to go there, it's there. <laughs> horrible so I didn't want that and uh, and so we edited a lot um, and that's that's it and, and when you were doing the rewriting one yeah. of the remarkable features about the kind of textuality of the, of the French text is um, you, you, you're using this uh, very inclusive way of marking mm. for example adjectival agreements so you say you followed this uh, 
guide pratique pour une communication publique sans stéréotypes de sexe from, from 2015. And, and one of the things that, so this is, this is um, past participles are, are marked with, 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 with um, masculine, yes. feminine, and plural. Yes. Uh, you, you, you know that in French, for those of you who don't speak French, French is, has a lot of gender. I mean, gender is everywhere. And uh, because, uh, I mean, the, the, the Académie Française has stated, because it, it wasn't like that before, but the Académie Française has stated that everything should be masculine. You know, the, it's the famous uh, universal masculine. So there's been some attempts to de-gender or to re-gender language. And so there's been some guidelines which, has be, which, ha, which have been published But of course, it's very controversial at the moment because, I mean, that what, everything that has to do with gender in France is extremely controversial. And there is this whole thing about la theory of gender, you know, against which uh, a number of people are. So there's all these fights about the grammar and about gender. And, you know, so it's very, for me, it was very important. So it makes the book longer because you have to add all these genders to one, you know, adjective. So it's na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Uh, it makes, maybe it's more difficult to read, but then it's, it's much more interesting. My own experience was with, yeah. with reading this, yeah. with your text, Please because often, often people do say this is a reason, you know, for not implementing this, that it encumbers the text and it makes it difficult to, to read. Actually, you, you get used to it extremely quickly, and actually the text demonstrates that yeah. this isn't a kind of... Yeah encumbrance yeah. <laughs> it may make it a little bit longer but mm. uh, at the kind of sentence level it's it's perfectly perfectly clear but so you know i mean to, to to get into that debate we can talk about that later length mm. afterwards but uh, unfortunately the newspapers don't you know they don't and it's a big problem you know when the newspaper will get accustomed and try to use this grammar inclusive this inclusive grammar maybe something will change but for the moment no And our prime minister said he would not use it. So, I'd like to ask you about this book as a, as a piece of self-writing. Yes. Um, um, I'm, I'm very struck by the fact there's, there's relatively little psychology in, in the book, in the sense that there are very few moments at which you are um, articulating a purely kind of psychological inner reflection on your, 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 your life and your, and your feelings. So there's certainly, there is affect in, but it's, it's political affect um, in, in the main, and, and yourself is kind of triangulate, triangulated against, externalized in the, the artworks, the, the art practices, the exhibitions, the activism, uh, and so on. And I, I'm just wondering um, uh, to what extent that was deliberate or whether that, that kind of, that was just the way you've, always approach these kinds of, uh, um, th this kind of writing. I mean, I think, I suppose I'm thinking particularly about a kind of gendered tradition of, 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 of women's autobiographical writing, which is very focused on, on feelings and psychology, um, divorced perhaps from, Af from, from politics. Well, you know, using the eye was a kind of pleasure that I was not, that was not tolerated by being a journalist. There is a rule in, in French newspaper that you never, 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 never should use the eye. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to erase any kind of personal, I mean, personal input, not personal input, but that use of that appropriation of your own criticism, for instance, if you're an art critic. So that, that it comes from 
first of all, comes from that. Then I guess I wanted to put everybody in, you know, at least every French person in a kind of deep shit, because I discovered <laughs> that the book is called Ce que le sida m'a fait, what AIDS has done to me. And I had this incredible experience twice. The other day, there was a panel discussion in a, at, at the in a museum, anyway, in a foundation, and the woman had, I was moderating one of the panels, and the woman wanted really to please me and to say very nice things about me. So she, she, she was talking about my curriculum, and suddenly she said, and she wrote this book, and she, suddenly she couldn't say it, because she couldn't say what AIDS has done to me. So I, that challenge for me is very interesting too. You know, there is a, I, if I have my, if I can use my PowerPoint, and then we'll go back to the investment of this, of the cell. Okay. So where do I, Oh, you see it? So it's a wonderful, wonderful artwork by Marcel Duchamp, which is called Tume. It's the same ce que le sida ma, and it's Tume. And it's wonderful because, uh, so it's really a very, very complicated uh, work that mixes, you know, real erasures, uh, material, you know, harm done to the painting and then, you know, all these plays, all these work plays with anamorphosis. But I, I, I didn't want to talk about that. I just wanted to talk about the titles, Tume. And Tume might say, tu m'emmerde, tu m'aimes, you love me, you, you know, you bore me. You. So that was the play. Okay. I just wanted to show that. Um, so the... Yes, of course. I don't think I, I, I don't think that using the eye is actually using you know trying to reveal, confess. And I'm, I'm totally you know we're all little Foucauldians and we don't want to have to be you know, to use a confessional eye, of course. But then it was also by trying to operate through the eye, this movement of deconstruction, of shattering that happened to all of us, you know, with AIDS. And this movement of reconstruction that this book might be a little bit about. You understand me? I mean, what happened to us? What happened to us all? Uh, whether, you know, whatever relation to AIDS one, one had was to be totally shattered, totally destroyed, totally uh, exposed, totally stupored. The, the French expression would be sidéré, stup in stupor. And this is, this probably was a, was very, was a way to deconstruct the self, deconstruct the eye. It was a movement of, of destruction and deconstruction. So, the book is about that. The book is about what happened also. And this is also why I absolutely wanted to use uh, the first person of the singular, to try to make all the readers able to understand that movement, 
Um, also, the, 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 the 80s were a moment where the, where the eye, the subject, was, became, of course, very important. And in the AIDS crisis, the, the eye became very important. Think about what it shifted of the relationship between the, uh, the, doc the patient and the doctor. Think of what happened, you know, where the, suddenly the people with AIDS would go to their doctor and say, I know much more than you on what is happening to me. I, you know, you cannot invisibilize my eye. We have to work together. Uh, look at it, 1985 is a moment where the, the, um, the, the people with AIDS associations began to go to all the, the international congress of laboratories, of doctors, of, of all the medical matters, and began to intervene as person, as important as the researchers would be. So the eye became a political, uh, a political eye there, you know, within the AIDS crisis. And it's also a moment, I have to say, where all the narratives with uh, all the self-narratives became also important in literature. In French, we have this word called autofiction, and this is the moment autofiction begins to be reinvented, at least, uh, by a number of writers. Whether right, they're writer with AIDS or whether they're not, but it is really also a very... So I wanted, by using the I, it was not talking about my own self, as you say, using this kind of psychology uh, which is always related to, uh, you know, to female, uh, to the feminine at least. But it was also it was really putting the reader and myself into that moment of deconstruction. And the you know I could be I. It's not a. It's not always a human I. Huh? It can be an exhibition. It can be a work of art. It can be. A, an activist gesture, it can be a dance, it can be a demonstration, it can be a collective thing, but it's always that I which shifts <coughs> throughout the book. And what I hope from this I is that it is a bit reconstructed at the end. Start. Thank you. I was going to suggest now that we invite you perhaps to read the very beginning of um, a wonderful essay in there. I mean, they're all sure. wonderful, but particularly wonderful, Liquide Précieux. Um, and if we could have the image of um, the mark, uh, Morris. Yeah, thanks. Oh, Thank you. Uh, you need your one? Yeah, please. <laughs> so Elizabeth will read in French, then I will read an English translation of the, the very beginning of this, uh, this chapter, uh, Precious, Precious Liquids. There is a quotation by Roland Barthes that I will not read. <laughs> oh, do you want me to read? No, okay. <laughs> L'homme émerge et s'enfonce, alternativement, selon que l'on regarde des plages d'ombre ou les reflets de lumière d'une surface agitée, où se pose aussi un capiton de bulles transparentes, quelques-unes parfaitement sphériques. Il n'est pas l'Ophélie de John Everett Millet. L'eau n'est pas le lit d'un corps peint comme, un gisant, comme un gisant sculpté. Au contraire, la tête vous fait face. Mais sa position, avec celle du torse qu'on devine, indique l'homme couché sous votre regard, qui le noie dans l'ombre et qui l'en fait surgir au, de sa, au gré de sa fascination. Vous n'en percevez ni le trait du visage, ni la poitrine gonflée ou détendue, ni les paupières. 
Sont-elles ouvertes ou fermées Rien ne vient ici suggérer l'hédonisme gay des piscines californiennes de David Hockney. Voilà une tête, un torse, anonyme, déformée par des ondoiements, des sillons, des plis, des rayons, des éclaboussures blanches et la noirceur d'un fond sans fond. Sur son front, une forme en couronne signale la goutte tombée, tandis qu'un serpentin laiteux fait disparaître le nez, défigure le visage. Merci. Um, so this is, um, so this is the image of Mark Morris Rose Ramsey, Lake Oswego from uh, 1988, at the translation, a translation. The man emerges and sinks down alternately, depending on whether you look at the swathes of shadow or the light reflecting from a troubled surface, over which is also lain a studded fabric of transparent bubbles, some of which are perfectly spherical. This is not Mie's Ophelia, The water is not the bed for a recumbent body painted as though sculpturally deceased. On the contrary, the head faces you, but its position, and with it that of the torso you can discern, suggests a man prostrate before your gaze, which drowns him in the shadow and pulls him out of it again as your fascination pleases. You can make out neither the facial features, nor the swollen or distended chest, nor the eyelids. Are they open or closed? Nothing here to suggest the gay hedonism of David Hockney's Californian swimming pools. Here is a head and a torso, anonymous, deformed by the undulation, the furrows, the folds, the rays, the splashes of white and the darkness of a background receding without end. On his forehead, a cross-like form suggests a fallen drop, while a milky serpentine shape hides the nose and disfigures the face. I think it's a, a beautiful opening for this, this, this wonderful uh, essay and... And um, so you, you talk in this essay, you, you move. Um, I'm going to kind of, kind of pick out a couple of the kind of landmarks in the, in, in the essay, I think. So you move through a reflection on, on your friend Patrick Bracco, hospitalized at the Hôpital Claude Bernard for hospital for infectious diseases in the kind of peri-urban area around, around Paris, a meditation on, on the effects of, of gentrification and the, the removal of, of, of spaces, cottages, tasks, Uh, spaces for interclass uh, mixing with, with gentrification. You, you, you mentioned De Delaney as well, of course, through Duchamp's Fountain uh, to Warhol's uh, oxidation paintings. Um, and then uh, you come to uh, Andrew Serrano's uh, Immersion uh, Piss Christ from, from 1987. And of this image, uh, this, this, this liquid. Uh, So this is a, a, a photograph, isn't it, of, uh, of, of a figurine immersed in, in a liquid which the artist said was, was his urine. Um, and He was doing some experiments at the time on blood, on urine, on milk. I mean, that was his photographs. And he, he, he used to go to all these little shops of, uh, you know, of paraphern religious paraphernalia in New York in order to, you know, in order, because he was a big collector of that. And you say you, you say what I think is something very wonderful about this this this, uh, this work. So you, you 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 read it as suggesting that that our images of the divine and our, our dreams of salvation can't be distinguished uh, from our excreta and our own death. That that is the kind of force of this of, the, of this work. I think you know I'm quoting Peggy Seaman to tell you the truth. <laughs> okay. Um, Well, it's good nonetheless. Um, yeah. and then, then you move, um, so you, then you move from there to uh, Robert Gover's pair of urinals, 
uh, and then Helen Chadwick's uh, Piss Flowers and also uh, viral, viral landscapes. Yes. So these coastal landscapes of Cornwall and uh, Pembrokeshire, I think. Um, and so these are, these are superimposed with images of the artist's own cellular tissue taken from the, the mouth, the ear, the blood, cervix and, and, and kidney. And then, um, <laughs> sorry, talking you through your own, yeah, your yeah. own essay, but so I'm part of the benefit you know, of, of no, not yeah, everyone yeah, who yeah. has necessarily encountered it directly yet. Um, and then there's this wonderful moment in which the, um, this, this essay turns around um, this, this utterance by the, the very sinister character in the film Dr. Strangelove, uh, General Jack D. Ripper, who talks about the kind of communist conspiracy to to steal our precious bodily fluids, and and so this 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 idea of, of fluidity, um, kind of this is where the essay kind of uh, turns. Okay. You talk about Gilbert and George. Um, uh, you talk then about Stuart Morgan's writing about precious the Louise Bourgeois precious. Uh, liquids uh, in, in installation, uh, his, his own kind of posthumous uh, exhibition, um, and then you return on a couple of occasions to to, to, to Maurice Rowe again, and it's this wonderful kind of performance of flow in this essay about liquids mm -hmm. and, 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 and and liquidity. Yes, what I, what what talking about vulnerability, I think that what really like. <laughs> affected me so much is to see that Morris Rowe photograph and to see all these works and what happened in between the background and the surface. Something is happening to, it looks as if some, something is happening to the image itself and it, it's liquidified, you know? And um, that was how I was like so affected, you know, I mean, I was very em emotional seeing all these works and seeing how it's the vulnerability of the image itself which is shown in the image. And then it made me shift to the moment where these images were made, these works were made. And I'm also thinking about, I had a long, longer chapter, you know, thinking about people like Sigmar Polke, his photographs, or Gerhard Richter, and the way they actually treat the surface, this, this mystery, this enigma of a something that you cannot touch, but, you know, which is dissolving in front of your eyes, but it's something that has to do neither with your uh, conscious view gaze uh, nor with your touch, but somewhere else. And I'm using actually the, um, the, the word forged by Derrida, which is called the subjectile, yeah? and trying to define this subjectile as this quality of being in between uh, what is the material support and the image, something which is there, but that you can touch, but cannot touch at the same time, and which is for me a, a source of pleasure. And then, of course, I have to think about the fact that those liquids, I mean, not liquids of the image, but the liquids of the body, were in fact the subject of the grandest panic and the grandest desire uh, in, beginning with the 80s. Um, you know, uh, the, the idea, of course, it, it was something that really shocked me. And when you, you talk about my friend Patrick, Patrick was in this hospital, Claude Bernard, and you know, people didn't want to touch him. I mean, there was this panic. And so he was in a room and the 
the people who were the doctors and the, everybody was, that was uh, taking care of him was passing everything with a mask and with gloves and through a little hole in the room. That was that time and this hospital. So again, this general panic and the fact that the artists, many artists, trying to touch upon this panic, try to think about and fight against the panic um, that, that, was, um, that was linked to the fact that the transmission of uh, the HIV is through, uh, as ACT UP would say, through semen, through blood, but also, I would say, through the law. Yeah? That was, was one of the big banners of ACT UP in Paris, par le sang, par le sperme, par, par la loi, through blood, through semen, through law. And I think it's really very interesting, uh, that banner. I think it's, it's really quite fascinating. So I really wanted to shift the, 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 the rumination about liquidity, about alchemy, about what it means also in our history, the idea, you know, the idea of making the, the idea of, yeah, the idea of the early photography as alchemy and stuff like that, and trying to rethink it again in a time of AIDS where liquids are quite a taboo, and from Ron AC to Franco B, many, many artists, where Andre Serrano, many, many artists were the object, actually, of censorship, and even more, uh, through their, their supposed use of contaminated liquids, which was, of course, untrue. And you talk about the specific kind of legislative context yes. in the US, especially yes. about kind of federal funding Yes, yes, yeah, of course. So it's it's story that maybe are. Can we go back? We are playing with this with the slides huh? a little bit, but it's nice. It makes a little silence. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go. But we'll go to here afterwards. So that's the poster, uh, that was the banner I was talking to you about. Maurice Rowe, Maurice Rowe, Maurice Rowe to make you feel a little bit about the incredible beauty and do, you see what I mean, you know, this, this quality of the image that you cannot grasp, you know, it's not the surface, it's not the ground, it's something that's in between, that lies in between. And, it is indeed the work that Maurice Rowe did in the, in the dark room. No, in French, the dark room is also the back room, is also the, sex, the room for sexual encounters. And Maurice Rowe, obviously, you know, his whole process of taking photographs, he wanted all his friends to lay naked somewhere, and he would take pictures, and then he would proceed in the dark room. He would do something in the dark room. And doing something in the dark room, he would double the negatives to do the sandwich prints. He would actually multiply the negatives, have a black, black and white negative and a color negative of the same photograph, and then you know, glue them to, uh, you know, stick them together. It's called sandwich prints. And you have also all the little doodles, uh, the, the finding of colors, the palette, of Mauricio, his signature, the name, the, his name, the year, which is actually part of the photograph. So this something was, was very important and interesting to me. Okay. That, that's actually also very striking. It's the, uh, I, I show this image in my book, but you, it's hard to see because it's in black and white. It's uh, 
the the installation that was made for Mark Robertsville, who was already dead, in uh, in the exhibition that Nan Goldin did in New York, which was called Witnesses Against Our Vanishing in at Artist Space, 1899, 18, and uh, we could we could speak a little bit about that. But the the catalog had a preface by David Wojnarowicz, and it was the calls again from one of um, one of this war. From the uh, from the uh, from the the Reagan government, the Bush government, the Bush government against um, and the and the, the, the and infamous Senator Jesse Helms, who was a a, a particularly homophobic uh, senator, who actually um, they actually wanted it had received a money from the NDA, the National Endowment for the Arts, and they tried to revoke the money. And it, okay. Let's not go into that. Oh, uh, what did I want to show you? I think maybe, well, I was asking about Helms and uh, yeah. funding. So, But actually, that image would be good at the next one, if, if um, we could okay. do that. Because I wanted to move on and talk um, with you now, if, if that's all right, about another essay. So, um, uh, Comme Antigone, uh, as like Antigone. And so this is a, um, a, a chapter where you talk about uh, the artist Zoe Leonard's uh, exhibition at, at Document uh, Nine in uh, 1992, and so uh, this uh, this work where so she went to the the Neue Galerie in in Kassel. She took down uh, some pictures, um, leaving only the pictures of of women in the gallery, uh, and replacing uh, the 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 pictures that she'd removed with 19 pictures uh, in black and white under glass but not framed, uh, screwed to the wall, 19 pictures of, of vulvas in, in close-up and life-size. Life uh, um, and uh, so this is a chapter very much that kind of um, speaks to your aim in the, in the yes. book of, of talking about the, the way in which lesbian activists were engaged alongside uh, gay men, especially uh, in the, in, 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 at this moment, and, and also about the kind of m movement between um, between the gallery space and uh, the space of space of activism, um, so I, because I, I, I just wanted to invite you to, and there's, there's been a kind of follow-up, hasn't there, more recently of Leonard's work that, that might be interesting to, to talk about as well. Yes. Okay. It's um, yeah. First thing, I, I I'm a feminist, and you know, for me to have you know a disparity. Uh, in uh, in in uh, in terms of having like eighty percent of the book, which is devoted to male artists, and twenty, it's not possible for me. So I really wanted to have you know a, a fair uh, equality. But then also I really uh, wanted to make just. I mean, there's been you know many books about AIDS, of course, and they never those books never 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 talk about. I mean, in America there's been a bit, but never talk about what lesbians have done. Never talk about, first of all, their invisibility in the AIDS crisis, because of course, you know, uh, lesbians were not visible in any kind of programs that were actually built uh, for AIDS testing, for, um, for, you know, trials. I mean, they were totally eradicated from the, from the health programs because supposedly, of course, you know, lesbians don't have sex, so they don't fuck, so of course you know, they don't get AIDS. I mean, that was the general discourse. It's true. And when, you know, my friend Catherine Gonard wanted to publish a brochure about lesbian and AIDS, I mean, she couldn't find a 
any place to publish it. She had to publish it, it herself. So there is a double invisibility. Women at the beginning of the AIDS crisis were not visible. You know, all the trials were actually shaped for men, for gay men, and weren't shaped for, um, for women. And then the, when, uh, when women were included in trials for lesbians, it was even worse. So first of all, I mean, they are invisible. And they are still invisible in numerous accounts about the AIDS crisis. So I really wanted to give back, you know, their, their capacity of dealing, and we go to Zoe Leonard, with public space. It is, for instance, in my, I was an actor up in Paris for a long time, and well, a certain time, and it is women, or girls, more women, who have been organizing all the public demonstration. And of course, one can understand why, you know, dealing with public space was uh, the, what, what women, and in particular lesbians, had been raised from, and they wanted to have their input into the public actions. So, of course, it's evident. And the, one of these actions, we could say in public space, is the one of Zoe Leonard. So we go to Zoe Leonard, who is also uh, a, an artist who has been, I would say, not only affected by AIDS, but she has AIDS, the ACT UP, was her school, was her, uh, was her college, was the, the, way, the, the place where she actually learned to produce uh, photographies and art. And this is, it really formed her, shaped her um, way to address uh, photography and the world. And so what she does in Castle in 1992 is really like a, an incredible gesture. So she has... All the paintings, you know, where men are the main subject removed. And so the idea, indeed, that it's, it's many, many ideas. But the first idea is, as we have been told, a patriarchal, heterosexual, white Western museum is, as we know, a half-empty museum. And I think that Zoe Leonard emptying a bit the museum makes us understand that the museum is of this kind is always half empty, although the museum always, always wants to be full. Go to the Tate, go to the British Museum, go to the National Gallery in London, go to the Louvre, everywhere. They hate voids. It's something that a museum can't stand, voids. It's just impossible. Because, why? Of course, because otherwise it would show. It would show that the voids are there, indeed. Huh? So, I think that the first gestures of Zoe Leonard is to address these voids because, you know, the photographs are very present, but indeed, the, they totally interrupt the capacity of the museum to hide these voids. So, suddenly, the museum becomes empty because of the gesture. And then, of course, it interrogates us as lesbians, as gays, but also as any kind of you know, um, in, proclivity uh, as spectators on the structure of our desire. You know, what is, what is, uh, how is our desire structured, and how is, how is not only? I mean, does she go into, you know, into showing through these paintings what the, you know, what we've known that the history again about. The uh, uh, patriarchal art history, but also she maybe interrupts
perhaps a little bit also the channel of this, you know, this, um, this um, weaving of art history, of feminist art history, as we know that, you know, it, it is a male gaze, it is a male representation of women, how they are idealized, etc., etc. Suddenly, maybe we can also think about our own desire as, you know, as women, as females, how do we, how can we actually, you know, um, go to interrogate our own desires? And of course, it has to be historicized a little bit. And the fact that these photographies of genita women's genitalia are there have a very, 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 very long history. Well, I mean, the most recent one when we think about these works is just film. I mean, the number of films where women's genitalia speak is quite numerous. Huh? Why? Because it's a long tradition in literature, at least in French erotic literature, where actually women's sex speaks because, of course, it's the, the mouth that says the truth. You know, you cannot... You cannot, um, un you, 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 you shouldn't believe what women say, as you know, in the medieval, from the medieval literature on, but of course it is, it's more true when it's the other mouth that speaks. And it, there's, so there's a long, 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 long tradition that actually Zoe Leonard is, is calling back uh, about the sex that speaks. And, and there's been many, many stories about that up to Linda Lothris uh, and uh, Deep Throat. And, you know, the, the type of discourse that Linda Lovelace, the actress, the, that was her name in Deep Throat. What is, you, you've all seen Deep Throat, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, obviously, yes. Okay, so I, <laughs> so I won't talk about it. So, I mean, you know, Linda Lovelace, first of all, said that she, she, was very happy to do the film, that she participated and she really <coughs> supported the film. And then she totally flipped over her position and said that she was raped during the film. So it's also, I mean, so I go into all that. But so that gesture for me is very important because uh, to talk about vulnerability, suddenly it's the museum which is made vulnerable to this action. And I think it's a gesture of resistance which is very important. Also, one has to say, so again, I, I talk a little bit about ACT UP and about all the, the kissing actions of ACT UP and the, you know, the read my lips, the fact that, well, you have the photograph of that. I, I do, think. yeah, I do, if we can find it. <laughs> it's not the Toro as we say in France. So that's uh, that was the, the the work that Zoe Leonard in a collective called Gang, um, a collective in Act Up. They actually produced this political poster where to understand what is at stake. You know, it's again if silence equals death. If you have no place, if you the the the, uh, the Supreme Court ban on abortion information, it's again you know who is speaking and who is not speaking and who is silencing who and who is invisibilizing who. So indeed, how the same work uh, used as a poster 
can actually is a, a place for mobilizing ab against you know something which not only invisibilizes you but makes you unable to speak. So again, it is the mouth, it is the power to speak, which is a which is at stake. Um, and uh, so um, there's a very beautiful, incredible book by David Roman. I don't know if somebody, someone has read it about performance in the age of AIDS. And it's a very beautiful book in which he talks at length about the fetishism of the lips during uh, that era. And he also talks about performances that are lip synced where actually people lip sync the performance. And he talks about the lip sync as the only voice through which a gay man can actually speak in the time, in the, in the early time of AIDS and the early times of uh, uh, panic and enormous homophobia. If it's okay, I'd like us to move on to talk about um, one more essay and then we'll throw um, the floor open to questions. Us open to questions. <laughs> um, so this is um, uh, this is a chapter um, on uh, Alain Buffard and particularly on uh, a, a dance performance piece of his from 1998 entitled "Good Boy." And you you do say of this piece, uh, "Elle a changé ma vie." It, it changed my life as yes. watching this performance. So we um, we've, we've selected a kind of two about two and a half minute excerpt from mm -hmm. from the piece, and with any luck. We will be able to show it to you now. Let's put it on the computer because it will be better.
Um, so, I mean, this interests me particularly, and you contextualise, so it's 1998, um, so it's two years after um, heart uh, therapies uh, come in, um, and you, you talk about this performance in, in, in the book as, um, as revealing to you what uh, un corps d'après could be like, a, a, body, an, a body for after, <laughs> after, and um, in other words, um, uh, and so you, you talk about uh, uh, this corps d'après as a body uh, which accommodates itself uh, to illness as it accommodates itself to life. Yes. And I, I wondered if you could expand yes. on that. Yes. Okay, so a little bit of the context. Alain Buffard is a, was a, a very athletic man and he became a dancer and he danced in, during the 80s. He was one of the most important French dancers of this new French dance that actually... Um, happened in the 80s. He was in many, 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 many performances, uh, particularly of a company uh, directed by a choreographer called Daniel Larieux. Anyway, so he was diagnosed uh, HIV positive and he stopped dancing totally, as if his body could not continue something. And so it's, it's really interesting because he became an, an assistant in, uh, in a gallery in Paris and he looked a lot at all the all the American uh, and French actually uh, works, videos by Vito Acconci, for instance. He looked a lot at Matthew Barney. He looked a lot at, a lot at Fabrice Hibert. He looked a lot about, at, you know, all these body performances that were happening at, in the 70s. And he also became interested, as a lot of French dancers, uh, to uh, the Judson Dance Theater, uh, performances. He went to see Anna Halprin, who was having a lot of uh, workshops for dancers with AIDS and people with AIDS. That was Anna Halprin is still alive. She's a, an incredible uh, dance teacher and choreographer in California, with her very famous dance step in San Francisco, in the in the in the in the woods. She she had her husband Lawrence Halprin build this incredible dance step where they do did all these experimentation. But then, you know, I'm, I'm pairing his first attempt to dance again, but no, his first attempt to show his body again is something that is a dance, which is 1998, of course, to um, cocktail therapy and, and what it changed in the whole consensus and in the life, in the, in the media also, you know, the idea that suddenly we can talk about homosexuality without talking about AIDS, a kind of also a silence that, that happens with uh, multiple therapies. So his work is a solo, and it's a solo that says to me, in, also with this example of using the, um, one, uh, you know, a, an HIV antiretroviral uh, medicine as, you know, Something which is, you know, may, you know, heal. It is a heal, but it's also very vulnerable because it falls apart. He has all these packs of, you know, medicine falling down. So it's again, it's a very two-folded relationship to, to what these things inside his bodies are going to do. But I think he is, for me, what changed my life is that he's, it's the first performance, at least that I saw, which is. Somebody who's saying, okay, I'm going to survive, maybe, but what am I going to do? 
what am I going to do with this body? How, with which body am I supposed to, to, love, to live? And it's, it's such a poignant question that he actually, um, you know, embodies. For me, it's, it's very, very, very important. And something else. Uh, his, his partner, Alain Menil, who was a, a fantastic philosopher, wrote something which I think he, again, also embodies. He, talk, he says, why don't we try to think about serological difference? So we are all serologically different. So it changes the whole apprehension of AIDS being, you know, people with AIDS or people without AIDS. Let's just be serologically different. And Alain Buffard is trying to think about this notion, I think, very potently. But also, it's a solo that he actually virilized, a little bit like Felix Gonzalez Torres' uh, work. So he actually taught the same solo to four men and then to 18 people, male, female, or whatever, um, who would actually embody not the same gesture, but would actually do their own gesture, their own solos <coughs> at the same time. And uh, Alain is dead now, but his, uh, there's been a whole revival of his work last um, autumn where actually somebody else did Alain Buffard. He had taught him to Mathieu Dos, who actually re-embodied Alain Buffard. And the, the viralized solo happened too. And it, it was just incredible to see that. Because really, it's, it, it not only embodies this moment in time, but also it changes the question. It changes the, the notion of our bodies, all of our bodies, I think. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Do you think it's a good moment to invite questions? Maybe? I think we've been very long. I mean, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm always so long when I talk about this thing. It's, uh, um, I'm just waiting for the mic so that we can... Um, this can work too. Um, thank you. I'm sure we can all continue this thing for a long time. But I'm going to ask Adrian to ask the first question. Yeah. I planned that he would ask the first question um, because he, you know, was at the origin of this event. And I wonder, Adrian, if you'd like to respond or ask a question. No, no, I won't ask a question. Go ahead.
very small amount of trust takes villages to sort of make it certain. When you're talking about land building in the way she knew that, there needs to be a complete just blacks or just crowds or just um, minority pair as a symbol in the way in which she creates a new kind of community you talk about, the, a community of tutuayamon, that is, that whereas the, the figure, the parodic figure is a kind of view, you know, the formal view is there. The community in which you don't engage, you say you want for intimacy, where you don't need a proper name, you just need this continuous circling of the word to, which is, I think, terribly much present in the amazing images of Warrenshaw, and that Tutuayamon is there. And I wonder if you could just think about that something which can only happen in the French language and how we can learn from that when we have this rather clumsy, perhaps unsufficiently inflected language of our own in the world, you know, which allows us to and what this means as tools of intimacy to start to see one form the word you. Ah, problem with French. You're absolutely right. It's true that in French we have the two distances to speak with two people and to sp and to relate to art. Indeed, yeah? the, the the very big proximity would be the tu, would be the intimacy of the tu, and then you have the vous, which is uh, which would be you know an, an, a kind of a respectable distance, a class distance also, yeah? and maybe a gender distance also. I mean, it is what puts distance between people who don't know very well each other. Uh, Spanish has that too, but it's uh, he or she, uh, and but English doesn't. So it puts every relationship at the same in in a way at the same level, maybe at the same distant level. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe at the same proximity level. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to like get back my public. <laughs> I'm flat. Um, yeah, Th that is what is so striking with Nat Goldie's photograph. I mean, at, of that moment, and it's not for nothing. I think that she. I mean, the fact that she takes photographs of her community and her inside. And it's always, and she's always inside that she says, it's my party. Maybe that's the translation. It's a retranslation of what she actually says. She says, you know, it's my party. Mm. Maybe that, that the tutoiement would be, it, it's my party, my party. Mm. But, but, but in, 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 oh, that struck me so much for us in, in putting that into the sector. It becomes a fresh form of thinking about land building as such. So that process of Yes. It would be part of our singularity if you can say something we can't, and we can't quite understand something you say. It's fascinating. Maybe I, well, that's. Hmm. More. But, yeah, you're right. The, the, I was, uh, um, um, names are very important in the book. I mean, the fact of naming or non naming. And there are some art, I mean, there are some artists, there are some ways of having the, the name and the surname, which for me are also very important because, you know, when people disappear, the name and the surname, you have to have the name and the surname. And so 
But there are certain moments of intimacy which are written in artworks where there is only the first name, which is, you know, the first name is a name that we can actually share also because it's not, you know, you're not the only one who wears that, um, that, uh, that name and it's not the nuclear family. So I think that, you know, for instance, when I look at the, the names project, some of the pieces of, uh, you know, the names project is, was in, created in San Francisco and it's uh, taking the, exactly the same sheet, I mean, not the same, but the same size of, you know, a piece fabric and then writing the name of the person who is not there anymore, and then, you know, putting little things, paraphernalia, things that the person liked or not, and things that the person... And it's really interesting to see how in these uh, names projects, sometimes there is only the first name, sometimes there is the surname too. So again, it's trying to indicate all these things that actually, maybe you don't have it in English, but maybe it's better because it makes the problem that it makes the fact that you don't have it in English more pal palpable, and thus it raises attention to these kind of distance. So my, that's my answer. You know, it's good to have it in French because we can actually have you know the idea that we we register the fact that you're close, Adrian. But at Adrian Rifkin is not so. It's, it's some some somebody else. It's another character, maybe. But if you don't have it in English, it raises the question of that distance too. Thank you for um, full discussion and for your very simple question. It, it's not a particular law. There's been, it's about all the corpus of laws that actually uh, were spreading the, the HIV through uh, excluding, through exclusion, through not making uh, the, um, the uh, injections, uh, the injection <coughs> legal, Okay, because intravenous injection, if you share needles, I mean, this was so, it's, it was a law that made, didn't, wasn't made in order to make the use of need, uh, needles legal. I mean, it's a corpus of laws that were made actually to not fight against the spreading of HIV. More abstractly, the laws of father Definitely also. Of course, yes, definitely. The law, the family laws. I mean, again, you know, all these laws that actually protect a kind of nuclear biological family. Um, and so the fact that the law enables a family to go in an apartment after somebody dies, the day after somebody has died, and then take all his things or, and just kick out his or her partner. For instance, I mean, I think it was fair. It wasn't referring to a particular law at the time. Thank you. Um, Lisa, I have a question. 
what you say but I don't know if there was a reactivation of anger within the activists of the 90s huh? maybe it taught to younger people that they could be angry too but angry you know it's yeah so you know I mean to to extend a little bit what uh, what you're saying is that you know there's a film that has been made that was released exactly at the same moment that my book was made it's uh, it's called uh, 120 bpm it's show it, sh it has been shown in London I think and uh, and it's 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 it has a huge it has had a huge success it's just incredible and I think that uh, what ha yeah because they see it's what is incredible in that film is that you see a community of young people who are actors of today, of course, huh? who are indeed embodying uh, angry activists of the 90s. And the fact that these angry activists are today, so maybe it's an answer to you, this community of young actors who have been chosen and who actually articulate those feelings of, you know, intervening in public space, uh, throwing blood, um, um, and having sex with each other is something that um, has, I mean, it's, it's actors who do that. It's young actors who do that. And I think that was the particular galvanization of young people of today relating to that film. The fact that it was not our less charming and certainly less beautiful selves of, you know, activists of the 90s. You're, there is, in the room, there is Diane who took many of the photographs that are in the, with Anne, many of the photographs which are in the book. And, you know, we weren't so pretty, I think. Huh? No, I don't think so. No, I think we were really ugly. Um, but what, it, what is, it's true that it erases melancholy in a way, this film. Huh? Why does it erase melancholy? Because it, it unfortunately, it provides a, a little shift to nostalgia 
And what we have to explain, I mean, I have presented the film a few times, and what we have to explain to young to those young people is that it was not the best moment of our lives. We, were, we weren't having the best time of our lives when we were actually doing all these actions with ACT UP. It was really a horrible moment, and they, it's very hard to provide that. So I think the melancholia, indeed, is not there, and but the nostalgia of having a kind of political action in the streets is certainly there, and it, you know, it really hits directly to what has been happening in the streets and the fact that street demonstrations right now are quite difficult to think about, you know, how do you demonstrate? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I personally, personally have the same problems, you know, how in the times of the internet, I mean, it, it's a technique. And maybe they have a kind of nostalgia towards the technique of going in the streets and demonstrating, which has a very long history, which is not only the AIDS crisis, but um, this technique seems to be a bit out of the moment and you know while there is you know the social networks and internet and i've been particularly stricken in france at least by the wave of demonstrations that were quite potent when the the law uh, for the for the equality in, in marriage uh, you know happened in France where the people who were in the streets were the people who were against it. And so how do you demonstrate against the demonstration? It's very complicated, as you remember, Yana. And uh, so maybe that is, you know, that is the thing that is really awakened by this film. The idea that there are some bodies, I mean, it's really wonderful to be a body in the streets. It's something that we all like, know, um, share, and at, how do you reconcile with that at the moment? That's a particular question one could ask you, maybe. Yes, of course, it's a very, very important question. Um, how could I begin? Um, you, feel a, you feel a response of angriness towards you. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't, but, I, but some of the students... No, the students do. Students. Yeah, why angry? Yeah, it's terrible to be an old fart and to say I was there. I know. I try to erase that. I really try to erase that. Um, by not giving any answer, I think that nostalgia has to do with closeness. And I, my book, I have no thesis in the book. I don't have any point. I mean, I don't have a point of view. I don't have a thesis. 
Uh, I try to partake a certain type of art criticism, as Adrian has very well said. You know, it's, I try to do art criticism in the book. Art criticism informed by activism, but I, it's art criticism. And I try to have a book which is sufficiently destroyed, dismantled, not, it, nothing, you know, there is no couture, there is, it's not, um, it's, it's not sewn. I mean, the chapters are not making a unique narrative, and it's very, so you cannot, you know, it's very complicated to make a synopsis, it's very complicated, it's impossible, I try to make those things impossible. It's very hard, I know, and you know, it's very preposterous from my part to do that, but I think it is in the way you teach or in the way you write, in the writing also, in the way you devise something, not to make it something which is closed, definitive, finished. Of course it's not. What is really incredible is the interest, and that's what the film has actually also shaken, at least in France, is the incredible interest for all these archives, for all these narratives, for all these histories, and for all what it can actually widen in an appreciation of writing, in an appreciation of what art history could be about, in appreciation of what artworks can be about too. So I think it has widened, and that's how this, this thing, I think, uh, it's a way to resist to this type of closeness, this nostalgia, and this horrible feeling of saying to others, you know, I was there, and you weren't, and it's disgusting. <laughs> Well, I suppose, well, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, anger is political affect, and this is obviously very present in the book, and, um, and, and the techniques of, of demonstrating that, um, that we were talking about a second ago. Um, I mean, I suppose it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, that what, something that maybe, maybe it's changed since this moment, that everybody seems to be angry now. You know, there's so much... Yes. Political anger everywhere. Yes. It's yes. kind of mainstream. Yes. And these techniques of kind of protest that, um, you know, I mean, in, in, the, in the demonstrations against equal marriage in France, there was iconography, there were techniques that were absolutely lifted, just absolutely transparently lifted from, from um, uh, you know, radical protests of a kind of the opposite kind political political um, uh, position. So, yeah, so I wonder if, I mean, and, and the kind of the, the sort of branding of the branding almost of AIDS that that Act of Paris especially was was brilliant at for the and it's getting its message out into the media circuits. I mean, this is now commonplace kind of public relations practices. So, what I suppose what um, has all this become mainstream now? In these techniques, this iconography, these modes of protest in a way that, and and indeed anger as a political affect. You know, anger is the moment where you get out of your stupor. Suddenly, uh, that's, you know, I, I can only describe by something that happens in my body, you know, and probably in, in many of yours, you know. The moment where you are totally, you cannot, you are feeling, you cannot do anything, you are in tears, <coughs> you are mourning, and suddenly you begin to be very angry against a number of things. And suddenly, so you are getting into immediately into a political discourse because if you're if suddenly you address your anger towards a number of causes, you have to address the 
people who are in the things who are responsible for this anger and you become a politicized person. So I think, well, if it has become mainstream in a way, it's fantastic because it, it would mean that everybody has become politicized. I don't think that. But it's true <laughs> that the moment where you, you pass from, I'm a victim, to, I mean, to this empowerment, it goes through anger because suddenly you are addressing uh, a, a, a government, laws, a silence, invisibility. I mean, you are, you are suddenly politicizing yourself. So has it become mainstream? Well, I don't know. This kind of anger, I don't know, because I see it, you know, in, in many, many other, when, I mean, you know, the, the, what is happening with Me Too, what is happening with, you know, a, a particular type of um, trying to empower oneself with, you know, having, having been a victim of sexual harassment. I, mean, I see that, uh, and I think it's, it's still good. No, I don't know. I don't know. You have to tell me that. I have no idea about the mainstreaming. I always feel very. I don't have any answer about that because I. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Has it become mainstream? It's, isn't it easy to say that finally? If I would say yes, would it be easy? Um, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, my impression is. My impression is there is an awful lot more kind of anger okay. around. <laughs> Ah, that I, I, that I don't know. But well, I think that what I was trying, what I was trying to investigate is anger and the techniques, the technologies that would enable anger to express itself. So they were different than the techniques of today, which is just you know signing a petition by doing something on internet, you know, using social networks to be very angry. I understand that. I am on Twitter. I know exactly what you mean by anger. Of course, you know, like people, it's just, an, you know, of anger. But the anger I was describing is an anger in, in, um, in tangled in a number of technologies, which are, some of them are still in use, some of them are not in use. It's not the same of expressing your anger at, on the telephone, which you know means something, and expressing your anger through another media. It's not the same thing of addressing your anger through a, an answering machine. You know that it's not the same technique doing the, expressing your anger by post, pasting and posting a poster in the streets that is going to be ripped off, or it's not the same thing. So that's the only thing I could say. And the age of anger, you have to explain that to me. <laughs> Another time. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining in, everybody. And um, there's drinks now to follow.